Tonight, KMIH 88.9 The Bridge presents The War of the Worlds, one of the most famous radio dramas in America by H.G. Wells. On October 30, 1938, Orson Welles stood on a podium inside a Madison Avenue radio studio as the clock struck 8 p.m. in New York City. He was preparing to direct 10 performers in a 27-piece orchestra for the Columbia Broadcasting System's monthly Mercury Theater on the Air show. Millions of Americans were huddled by their radios to tune in, but very few were listening when it was announced that Wells and his co-stars would be doing an original adaptation of H.G. Wells' science fiction novel, The War of the Worlds, which was published in 1898. Many people came across Mercury Theater as they were on the air without hearing the disclaimer at the top of the radio play. Thus, they found themselves in the middle of an hour-long drama that led some to believe the country truly was under attack. The production was originally intended to be a scary story for Halloween. However, the terror that Wells instilled in America was far bigger than he imagined. Thousands of frightening and confused listeners believed the reports were real. With phone calls, they bombarded police departments, newspapers, and CBS itself. The country was in mass hysteria. Today, the famous radio play has been produced, edited, and directed by Sadie Jensen, starring the staff of KMIH 88.9 The Bridge. Ladies and gentlemen, the director for today's broadcast, Sadie Jensen. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as moral as his own. We know now that as human beings bruised themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in assurance of their domain over this small spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immersed ethereal gulf, minds that to our minds, as are, are to the beasts in the jungle. Intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarding this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business was better. The war scare was over. Most men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crossley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We now take you to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza in New York City, we bring you the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Ramon Raquello leads us off with La Comparsita.
Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving towards the Earth with an enormous velocity. Professor Pearson at the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Now a tune that never loses favor, the popular Stardust, Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of the occurrence, we have arranged an interview with noted astronomer Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on the event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. We are now ready to take you to Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. I am standing in a large semi-circular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of this huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through a giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides his ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor. Would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest to Earth, in opposition as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely a result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I'd say the chances against it are 1,000 to 1. And yet how do you account for those gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Mr. Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. Well, that seems safe enough from a distance. 
just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. One moment, please. Professor Pearson has just passed me a message. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire address to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the National History Museum, New York, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is a mere coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 minutes, we have been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning to you now in our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of McGill University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms early reports received from the American observatories. Now, nearer home comes a special announcement from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give a word description as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millay and his orchestra are offering a program of dances and music. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again at the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I, I hardly know where to, to begin to paint it for you. Uh, a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian Nights. Well, I, I, I just got here. I haven't, haven't really had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's, that's it. Yes, I guess that's the... The thing directly in front of me, half turned in a vast pit, must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself, it doesn't look very much like a meteor, it, at least not the, the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has the diameter of a, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? What, what, would, what would you say? What is the diameter? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the, the sheath is... Well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of a yellowish-white. Curious spectators are now pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. Uh, they're they're getting in front of my line of vision. Would you mind standing to one side, please? One side there. One side. While the policemen are pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. He, he may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of the rather unusual visitor that dropped into your backyard? Step step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmoth. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? 
Louder, please, and closer. Yes, sir. Well, I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozing. Yes, half... yes, Mr. Wilmoth, then what happened? As I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway. Yes, Mr. Wilmoth, and then you saw something. Not first off, I heard something. And what did you hear? A loud hissing sound, like this. Kind of like a Ford of July rocket. Then what? Turned my head out the window and would have swore I was about to sleep and dreaming. Yes? I seen a greenish streak and then zingo! Something smacked on the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmoth? Well, I I ain't quite sure. I reckon I, I was kind of riled. Thank you, Mr. Wilmoth. Thank you. Want me to tell you some more? No, no, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in the back of us. Police are trying the, to rope off the roadway leading to the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half-buried. Some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. The policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I have not mentioned in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've already caught it on the radio. Listen. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll move the microphone nearer. Now we're, we're not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, Mr. Phillips. Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside this thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface? I, I, I see. And do you think it's still a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes into meteorites. This thing is smooth and, as you can see, it, Cylindrical shape. Now, just a minute, something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This uh, end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top of it is beginning to rotate like a screw. This thing must be hollow. Get back, please. Oh Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I have ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone or something. I said, please keep back. I can see peering out of that black hole two luminous discs. Are they eyes? It might be a face, it might be... Good heavens! Something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one, and another. They look tentacles to me. There, I can see the thing's body. It's large, large as a bear, and it glistens like wet leather. But that face, it... Ladies and gentlemen, it is, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. The monster, whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems weighed down by possibly gravity or something. The thing's raising up. The crowd falls back now. They've seen plenty. This is the most extraordinary experience. I can't find words. I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on. Will you please? I'll be back in a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We return now to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, 
am, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, here I am back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I can get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're, they're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit, about 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. We can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now they parted. The professor moves around one side, studying the object, while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole, a flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means, wait, something's happening. A hump shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against the mirror. What is that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror, and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Good Lord, they're turning into flame. Now the whole field's got fire. The woods, the barns, the gas tanks of automobiles, it's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indo Kulfer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We now continue with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone just a moment ago. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as far as Princeton and east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except for special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and will aid in the evacuations of home within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back into their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. Combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill, where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. 
of their destructive instrument, I might venture some molecular explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as heat ray. It is all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It is my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose, by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here's a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now here's another bulletin from the Washington DC office of the director of the National Red Cross. He reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police Princeton Junction. The fire at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. The scouts report all quiet in the pit and no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request from the militia at Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In the view of the gravity of the situation and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of Signal Corps attached to the state militia now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of undefined nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object which lies in a pit directly below our position is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry. Without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns, all cause for alarm if such cause ever existed is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it is an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniform crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering Millstone River, probably fire started by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it will all be over. Now wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of Wilmoth's farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. Wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why is it standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework? Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on! Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover's Mill has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by any army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 
120 known survivors, the rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allentown and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad fight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. At this time, martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. We take you now to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency, the Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and the property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We are informed the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon the power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bulletin from New York. Cables received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on planet Mars. Majority voice opinion that enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. Attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in a recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetop, moving north towards Somerville with populations fleeing ahead of them. Heat ray not in use although advancing at express train speed. Invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making conscious efforts to avoid destruction of cities and countrysides. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here's a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Local hunters have stumbled on the second cylinder, similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before a cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. They're taking up positions in the foothills of Wachung Mountains. Another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes support enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed northwards, kicking over houses, trees, in their evident haste to form conjunction with their allies south of Morrisontown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of the enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Wachung Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire. 140 yards to the right, sir. 
Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire! A hit, sir. We got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. And fire! can't see the shell land, sir. They're letting off a smoke. What is it? A black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. It's moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire. Still can't see, sir. The smoke's coming near. Get the range. <laughs> 23 meters. <laughs> 23 meters. <laughs> 23 meters. <laughs> Projection, 22 degrees. <coughs> 22 degrees. <coughs> Army bombing plane V843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Vogt commanding eight bombers. Reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. This is Vogt reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by... Three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine already crippled, believed hit by shell from army gun in Watchung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth, of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey Marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're, they're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Plane circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go! The giant arm raised! Green flash! They're spraying us with flame! T -t Two thousand feet! Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This is New York, New Jersey. This is New York, New Jersey. Warning, poisonous black smoke pouring into from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street, gas masks useless. Urge population to move in open spaces. Automobiles uses routes 723-24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over Raymond Boulevard. 2X2L, calling CQ. 2X2L, calling CQ. 2X2L, calling 8X3R. Come in, please. How's reception? How's reception? 
Okay, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? We're now speaking from the roof of the broadcasting building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchinson River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island. Hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army wiped out. Artillery. Air Force. Everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here till the end. People are holding service below us. In the cathedral. Now we look down the harbor. All manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from the docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in the city. Wait a minute. Enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five. Five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through the brook. Martian soldiers are falling all over the country. One outside Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seems to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. His steel, cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. They're lifting their metal hands now. This is the end, now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running towards the East River, thousands of them dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People running away from it, but, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, 100 yards away. It's 50 feet. X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ. New York. Isn't there anyone in the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? 2X2L. As I set down these notes on paper, I am obsessed with the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I have been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, the small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems a part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present future existence of the lonely man who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I try to connect them with the professor who lives at Princeton, and who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my... my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? 
Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? In writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live. And to live, I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. From time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there is a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. Morning! Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas has lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there a wrecked car. Baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. I push on north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. Should one of their machines appear over the top of the trees, I am ready to fling myself flat on the earth. I come to a chestnut tree. October chestnuts are ripe. I fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction, through a lonely world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him in wonder. He stares back at me. I believe in that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. I push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field, beyond the charred ruins of a dairy. The silo remains standing guard over the wasteland, like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Astride the silo perches a weathercock. The arrow points north. Next day, I came to a city vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant hand had sliced off its highest towers with a large sweep of his hand. I reach the outskirts. I find Newark undemolished, but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it and it rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop. Where did you come from? I come from... many places. Uh, a long time ago from Princeton. Princeton! Uh, that's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down to the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I, I don't know. I'm guess... I guess I'm looking for... for people. <laughs> what was that? Did you... Did you hear something? Just then? Only a bird. A live bird! You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl into this doorway and talk. Have you seen any... Martians? Nah, they've gone over to New York. At night, the sky is alive with their lights. Just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I believe they're learning how to fly. Fly? 
Yeah, fly. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I, two of us left. They got themselves something solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. <laughs> yeah, what's left of it? I was in the militia. National Guard. That's good. Wasn't any war any more than there's a war between men and ants. And were eatable ants? I found that out. What will they do with us? I've thought it all out. Right now we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep doing that. They'll be in catching us systematic, like keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't even begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have enough sense to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off into crowds. Now instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Done. But if that's so... What is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so. And no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, <laughs> I guess the game's up. And what is there left? Life, that's what I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We are not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either and tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on right under their feet. I got a plan. We as men are finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we've got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free while we learn. See, I've thought it all out. See? Tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that were made for wild beasts. And that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you. All these little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff to him. They just run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running wild to catch their commuter train in the morning for fear they'd get canned if they didn't, running back at night afraid they won't be in time for dinner, lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents, and on Sundays worried about hereafter. The Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. <laughs> After a week or so chasing about the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? You bet I have, and that isn't all. These Martians will make pets of some, train him, do tricks, who knows? Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. And some, maybe they'll train to hunt us. No, that, that's impossible. No human being- Yes, they will. There's men who do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, why? In the meantime, you and I, others like us, where are we going to live when the Martians own the earth? I got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody. There's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, huh? And we'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weak ones. 
That rubbish out. You meant me to go? Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? We won't quarrel about that. Go on. And we've got to make safe places for us to stay. See, we can get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We'll raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. Just imagine this. Four or five on their own fighting machines suddenly start out. Uh, heat rays right and left and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, but men. Men who have learned the way how. It may even be in our time. Gee, imagine. Imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on, Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down to their knees. That's your plan? You and me and a few more of us, we'd own the world. I see. Say, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Goodbye, stranger. After parting with the artillery man, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel. I entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. I reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies, and an evil ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s. I stood alone on Times Square. I caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving pups at his heels. He made a wide circle around me, as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. I walked up Broadway in the direction of that strange powder, past the silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks, past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Columbus Circle, I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. From over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of blackbirds circling in the sky. I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I climbed a small hill above the pond at 16th Street. From there, I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their great steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of blackbirds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground, and there, before my eyes stark and silent, lay the Martians, with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in the laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all man's defenses has failed, by the humblest thing that God in his wisdom put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a great persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I have made up in my mind of life, spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of surreal space. But that is a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve 
to them and not to us. Is the future ordained, perhaps? Strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to see from my window the university spires dim and blue through an April haze. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter a museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean cut, hard and silent, under the dawn of that last great day. This is Sadie Jensen, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. KMIH's radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo! Starting now, we couldn't prank you all for Halloween, so we did the next best thing. We wiped out the world before your very ears. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it. So goodbye, everyone. And remember the terrible lesson you learned tonight. And if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. Why? It's Halloween. Tonight, KMIH 88.9 The Bridge has brought you The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, originally aired October 30th, 1938 at 8 p.m. in New York City. The War of the Worlds is one of the most famous radio dramas as it caused mass hysteria across the nation when it aired. We hope the mass hysteria wasn't as grand for our version. Produced, edited, and directed by Sadie Jensen and starring the KMIH staff. Now let's hear it for our amazing cast. Sadie Jensen as Professor Richard Pearson. Annabelle Haggerty as Announcer 2 and Voices. Caroline Capuano as Announcer 3 and Voices. Max Taylor as Reporter Carl Phillips. Sid Schroff as The Stranger. Sophia Azano as The Officer. Jonathan Agar as Mr. Wilmuth. Theodore Freeman as Gunner. Miles Avalez as The Observer. Kate Lennington as Captain Lansing. Greg Schiavone as Commander Vote, Yasmin Mohammed as Secretary of the Interior, Paige Evans as General Montgomery Smith, Alexis Weaver as Vice President Harry McDonald, Angelina Durkee as Operator 4, Sam Pador as Operator 1, Greta Weeks as Operator 3, Afton Fossine as Operator 2, and Tolly Odevinch as the Policeman. And finally, me, Joe Bryant, the MIHS radio teacher as your narrator today. I hope you enjoyed War of the Worlds.